Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Bethany, both here in the sanctuary, across the street in the, in the chapel as well. Also, many of you are worshiping online, and today, uniquely, also at all of our various locations that are Bethany in the greater Seattle area. We're grateful that you're worshiping with us as we close this series about spirit, soul, body, wholeness. It's a privilege to close the series, kind of wrapping everything up together, uh, and then we enter into a new series next week entitled Christ in Psalms, whereby leading up to Easter we'll be looking at various psalms together and seeing how everything in the Bible points to Christ as our source of life. Please take a moment, let's pray together, and then we'll look at what God has to say to us. Father, we want to thank you that as we gather here to listen for your voice, that you're here with us even right now, and we trust, pray, and ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we'd have ears to hear what you want to say to each of us individually, but also that you'd shape us as a community so that in our bodies we might reflect nothing less than the risen Jesus who lives within us, and that we might increasingly represent you accurately, Father, your justice, your mercy, your hope, your love, your joy. May that be our story as we take steps toward you today, and we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Is there anyone in the room from California? I know there is a, at least some of you are from California. And I'm going to ask, has anyone ever visited the Winchester House? Does anyone know what that is? You, many of you probably don't know. When I was a kid growing up in California, super popular as a tourist destination in the kind of the southern part of the Bay Area, what's now called the Silicon Valley, there's this place called the Winchester House. And the story behind the Winchester House is this. Sarah Winchester is this woman whose husband died, and if you're into guns, you know the name Winchester as the kind of the rifle manufacturing company. That's that Winchester. So uh, when, this is in the 1880s, when he died, she inherited on the spot $20 million dollars, which is a lot of money in 1880, and then she received in 2020 dollars for the rest of her life an income of $26,000 a day. Can you imagine? 26, you got $20 million and $26,000 a day coming in, and then that begs the question, okay, I got all this money, what am I going to do with it, right? So in 1884, she moved west from the East Coast bought this little small unfinished farmhouse and then hired carpenters who worked around the clock on this house for the rest of her life. And they just started adding room after room after room. But hear me, what makes this place so popular is a tourist destination. There was no plan. There was never an architect. They just kept adding rooms. So the house, if you go there for a tour, is constructed entirely randomly. Rooms are added onto exterior walls, uh, resulting in windows that look into other rooms. Multiple staircases were added with different sized risers, so the staircases had distorted looks. Stranger so than that even was the fact that many of the alterations were entirely pointless, and the best example is there are several staircases, such as this one that we see here, this staircase right here, it's coming. Staircases that lead to nothing. So, like, there's a staircase, and you go up, and there's no, there's no door, there's nothing. It's just a staircase. So they're building staircases that are meaningless, building rooms that are meaningless, building staircases that are random. The whole, the whole thing, this went on for a year so that she ends up with a seven-story house, some rooms entirely inaccessible, some staircases leading to nowhere, 
Uh, you turn a corner in a hallway, it's a dead end. I mean, it's hysterical. It's a, watch this, it's a house without a purpose, okay? So this is the danger, in my opinion, of what we've been doing these past six weeks. We've been teaching on Paul's desire, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that all of us be whole, spirit and soul and body, fully sanctified, right? But the danger in teaching about our own wholeness is we have to ask the question always to what end, right? In other words, it's possible to gain a spiritual identity, do soul work of prayerfully allowing God to redeem the broken parts of our soul, take steps towards stewarding the health of our body. But if we don't have a goal in mind, it's like we're building this building without any purpose. So I'm gonna ask the question in this particular closing time together, why is Paul praying for our wholeness? The risk that we run is if that wholeness becomes an end in itself, it's nothing more than self-absorbed narcissism. Does that make sense? We become kind of walking illustrations of the Winchester house. We're trying to improve ourselves continually, try to lower our blood pressure, try to redeem our story, more therapy, more CrossFit, more meditation, more Bible study, so that we can be holier, more adjusted, happier, healthier, but to what end? It actually reminds me of those books by Tim Ferriss, some of you read them, for our work week, for our body. And Ferriss is kind of saying this, look, look, let's get healthier, let's get more efficient, let's get faster, let's get richer. But then I always ask the question, why? Like, what's the point of being a whole person? Because if all I do is more meditation for my spirit, more redeeming my story, more good habits for my body, but I don't have a goal in mind for all of that becoming a better version of me, so to speak, if I miss the point, then I land in Ecclesiastes 1, right? Where it's vanity, it's vapor, it's smoke. I'm better, but who cares? So what we're doing in this time together is we're gonna make this kind of bold statement, staircases exist for a reason. Staircases should look like that. They should look like that, right? This is uh, looking kind of down on a staircase from the top, and you can see a staircase is going somewhere. The reason I love this particular picture is if you ask where's the staircase, where's the staircase going, the answer that you know is this, it's going somewhere higher. So Paul articulates this in Philippians chapter three. Paul says, look, my pursuit of Christ isn't a horizontal calling. He says, my pursuit of Christ is an upward call. And I love that phrase, upward call. We named a ministry after that when we ran an outdoor Bible school for a number of years. It was called Upward Call based on Philippians three, where Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I pursue the upward call of God that is in Christ Jesus. Staircases are going somewhere. Our life in Christ has a somewhere that is higher. We're moving from lower to higher, which means in our language, we're called to move from lust to love, from self-justification to vulnerability and confession, from greed to generosity, from bitterness to forgiveness, from anxiety to peace. Ultimately, from living from, for ourselves to pouring our lives out in service to God by serving 
other people. So we have a calling that Paul articulates in Galatians 1.16 this way, God was pleased to reveal God's son in me. In other words, God's deepest desire is that I would look in my body more and more and more like Jesus. The love, compassion, charity, patience, joy, hope, wisdom, strength of Christ revealed uniquely through me, uniquely through you, and for us as a church, uniquely through us as a community. So Seattle then can encounter the living Jesus through our life together. That's why we exist. We have a purpose. And for us to fulfill that purpose, uh, we need to be people in pursuit of wholeness, but not as an end in itself, like not a self-improvement program. Wholeness in order that people might see Christ. If you get nothing else this morning, get that, because that's the whole reason we've done this series, so that we, each one of us might look more like Christ, might more accurately represent the heart of Jesus. So we're going to do kind of three R's in our time together this morning, a review of where we've been, a risk of our life as a community becoming a stairway to nowhere, and then, uh, and then the reality of our true purpose. And we're going to start with a review of where we've been, and where we've been, as you see in your outline, is a new identity in the spirit, a soul in the process of redemption, and a body able to make God visible. New identity in the spirit, soul in the process of redemption, body able to make God visible. Let's just review those things for our life together. Remember, you've received a new identity in the spirit. In Ephesians chapter one, you're told you've been given everything you need to live the Christian life. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're given all things pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1. You're adopted. You're, you're chosen. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven. You're the bride of Christ. You're complete in Christ, Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. So we introduced in our community the practice of meditating on our identity in Christ, meditating on the reality that Christ lives in us, that his spirit has been joined with our human spirit in this mystical union so that we can have the confidence of knowing we're made to bear fruit. Like I know Christ lives in me. I forget, that's why I meditate on my identity in Christ. Many people, as I've shared, many people think meditation is some kind of Eastern intrusion on Christianity and yet Psalm 1 said, blessed is the man who what? meditates on the law of God. And meditate simply means to chew on over and over again so that it can be assimilated by your body. It's the same word used for a cow chewing on its cud. So I'm, like, I'm reminding myself that I'm complete in Christ so that Christ who lives in me can now be poured out through me into the world. But it all starts with me having this, this new identity in Christ. Everything begins there. So we started there, and then uh, we talked about how important it is that this new identity, Christ who lives in you, remember those concentric circles, Christ is in your spirit, you're complete in your spirit, now that, that Christ who lives in you needs to kind of redeem your soul, which we defined as your mind, will, and emotions, and remember, 1 Peter 1.9 says that the outcome of your ongoing faith is the deliverance, salvation, transformation of your soul. 1 Peter 1.9 says that your soul is in the process of being saved. So your soul is where your personality comes from. And so every one of us have a different expression of mind, will, and emotions, each one unique. Some of you are 
uh, funny. Some of you are not funny at all. Some of you are very serious, right? So, so, some of you are intellectual. Some of you are, are more into living out from your body. Some of you are very emotional. Some of you are very sensitive. Some of you are insensitive. We all, like, we're, everyone is unique. But what Christ wants to do is allow now the spirit of Christ who resides in us to begin to control the soul and yet our soul over the course of a lifetime has chosen various ways of protecting itself that shut Jesus out, if that makes sense. In other words, let me put it another way, various souls are broken in different ways so various souls self-protect and self-medicate in different ways. Some people choose anger. Some withdrawal. Some self-medicate with drugs or alcohol, pornography. Some choose to hide from reality by working long hours. Some choose to hide from reality by joining a CrossFit gym and just becoming the healthiest body version of themselves. Some sit in front of the TV for endless hours. But whatever happens, watch this, when my soul is running my life rather than the spirit... Then, then Christ who is in me doesn't find expression. My soul needs transformation. And the way that happens is for me to begin to confess the things that are in my soul that are not in keeping with God's will. And as I begin to practice confession in my soul, when I name stuff and bring it into the light, it loses its power. My story becomes redemptive. So I've shared with some of you how... Um, I've needed to confess my fear and anger over abandonment because of my adoption or to confess my loneliness and anger after my dad died. Those confessions become critical pieces of my soul transformation. So if you think that just meditating on your new identity in Christ is going to lead to you in your body displaying more and more Jesus, you're mistaken. Your story needs to be redeemed. And that means us being in touch with the own broken parts of our lives, naming those things, replacing the lies we believed with truth. That's what we talked about when we talked about soul. We looked at Judah as an example of someone whose soul was transformed. He went from being filled with hate and jealousy regarding his brother Joseph to one willing to lay down his life for his brother Benjamin. That's the transformation of the soul. So, uh, a new identity spirit, a soul in the process of redemption, finally, a body able to make God visible. Remember, in Genesis 1, we're told that humans are made in the image of God. And what all that means is we are called to make God, who is invisible, visible in our lives. And we use that phrase around here at Bethany. We're making the invisible God visible. None of us does this perfectly. And we don't do it perfectly as a community either, but it is our calling. So it is our goal to reflect Christ accurately, right? And the reality is that God's character will be seen in the world as God's character is seen in God's people. So the outward fruit of God's life inside you, when, when God's life in you becomes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, and so much more that's beautiful than life-giving, when that happens, when you walk by the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, then you begin to discover uh, that you are this living presence of, of, of Christ. 
And then you and your body begin to display the character of Christ. And Paul calls that in Romans 12 an act of worship. You're offering your body now, your body, as a living sacrifice. So you're, you're going where God wants you to go. I remember, uh, I think I shared it in, in our body sermon, but it may have been in a different sermon. But I shared one time being finished with the fourth sermon of the day, being super tired, wanting to go out that door right over there and leave, seeing a line of people waiting to be prayed for, and I literally started to walk toward the door. I'm getting out of here before I feel too guilty. And the Spirit of God convicting me. No. Turn your body around and go down there and be in face-to-face contact and be, be the presence of Jesus for that person. When, when we talk about our body belonging to God, we're not just talking about food and movement and sleep, though those matter. We're saying God cares where you are. God cares whether you make eye contact or not. God cares if you listen or if when you're with somebody, you're already planning your response before they're done talking. God's desire is that your body be a display of God. And Romans 12 calls that worship. When you're living that way, your whole life is worship. So this is a vision God has for our lives. This is the Spirit of Christ made visible in our broken, hurting world. And becoming increasingly a clear expression of Christ to one another is discipleship. That's why we gather. That's why we study. That's why we pray. That's why we do everything we do, that we might, with greater clarity, display nothing less than the risen Jesus to the world. So that's kind of what we're about here by way of a review of where, we're be- where we've been. Now what I want you to see is uh, it's possible to begin this new life and never, at- never attain to the life for which you're created because we're building stairways to nowhere if that makes sense. So what do I mean by stairways to nowhere? Well, I'm going to, again, give you, give you three things. This is stairway to no, uh, nowhere, a spirit that's completely hidden. Like if Christ lives in you and nobody ever sees it, that's a stairway to nowhere. Other stairway to nowhere in your bulletin, in your outline, a new spirit with a rebellious soul, a soul never transformed. And then finally, <clears throat> a new spirit and transformed soul in a rebellious body. All of those are ways to blow it. Like, we have a staircase, but rather than getting into our calling, it's a stairway to nowhere. So let's look at those. A spirit hidden, what does that mean? Uh, Don't raise your hand, but I'll ask. Anybody in the room feeling just a sense of total shame and unworthiness, and so you've stepped out of service because you feel like you just don't belong in God's family, like you've blown it? Anybody in the room who's like this, if, if... if the people here knew my thought life, they'd kick me out of the church. Like if, if you're feeling that today, I want to remind you that your spirit is completing Christ. You've got other stuff going on. We all do. But never forget, your spirit, in your spirit, you are whole, loved, accepted. 1 John 3, 9 says that When we're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, that phrase, when we're in Christ, 
we're not even able to sin. And what that means is when Christ is running your life, you can't sin. So Christ lives in you. This source of wholeness is there. Even when we don't live by that source of wholeness, it's still there. There's this song, the name of which I don't know, but the lyrics go this way. Mirror, mirror on the wall, telling lies, pointing out your flaws. That isn't who you are. That isn't who you are. It might be hard to hear, but let me tell you, dear, if you could see what I can see, I know you'd believe that isn't who you are. There's more to who you are. And the song goes on to say, uh, you're the, hey, you're the bride of Christ. I see you dressed in white. I see you perfect. I see you whole. I see you loved. Can we believe that? Because if we can't believe that, if we're always trying to earn God's approval, we're not on the ground of grace. And if we're not on the ground of grace, then the life we're living isn't the Christian life. It's legalism. Everything starts, hear me, everything starts with receiving. If you don't get that, it's not the Christian life. Like, did you earn anything? Here's the answer, no. God's not looking around today going, man, who's really killing it out there with, you know, obedience to the law? That's the one I want to choose. No, there's no way. So, we need to learn to confess not only our sins, true, but confess our identity. What do I mean by that? Try this. Confess, like confess literally means to say the same thing. Homo legeo. What if you said the same thing about you as God says about you? So God says you're complete in Christ. So say it. I'm complete in Christ. Go ahead, say it. Yeah. Do you believe it? Yeah, no. I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on. Whatever. Is it, God said it. If you had a problem with being complete, don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. It starts there. Your spirit is complete. So this is why we do uh, meditation. This is why we encourage meditation at Bethany. We encourage people in the morning to spend time with those little identity cards reminding ourselves of our identity in Christ. Every morning, I'm completing Christ. Thank you. It's really good. You remember Jacob, he lied, he cheated, he stole from his brother. But when God meets Jacob in the wilderness, the first thing God does is remind him of his identity. What does God say to Jacob? You're called, you're complete, I'm with you, I'll guide you, I'll be with you, I'll take care of you. You're blessed, you'll be a blessing. God believed in Jacob even when he didn't believe in himself. So if I'm stuck in shame, then Jesus who lives in me will never find expression. I have to begin by believing that I'm complete in Christ. Second, stairway to nowhere, <clears throat> to nowhere could be a new spirit with a rebellious soul. And a good, great example of this is Saul. In 1 Samuel 11, verses 5 and 6, you read the Spirit of God came upon King Saul. So Saul has God's Spirit, and yet, in Saul's soul, you may or may not know his story, but in Saul's soul, this is the, king, the first king of Israel, he was proud. He was proud. And so here's what happens. When Saul is confronted with his failures, 
uh, first time he's confirmed with his failures, he blames other people rather than owning his stuff. Second time he's confirmed with his failures, he justifies his failures rather than owning his stuff. And because of his failure to confess, um, his soul remains, I'm going to say, unredeemed. Does that make sense? His soul remains unredeemed so that uh, he becomes filled with jealousy. Uh, King David, who will ultimately be his successor, he's not king yet, but remember if you know the story of David and Goliath, David kills the guy, and then David's a warrior, and then he's winning battles, and it says, the women came out of all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul. This war is ended, and the women are dancing and singing, and they said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And then this is what you read. Saul was like this. Wow, I'm so happy for David because he's God's new anointed. No, here's what you read. Saul, who has the spirit of God. Remember that. Saul was furious and resented the song. They've ascribed tens of thousands to David, he said, but only thousands to me. How petty is that? Yeah, yeah. That's a soul unredeemed. Spirit of God came, but Saul would not allow his new identity to affect his mind, will, and emotions. And so through justification and blame and pride and comparison, he remained stuck. This is why it's so important that we participate with God in redeeming our story. In other words, we need to be humble enough that when our soul presents something that doesn't look like Jesus, we're like this. Oh, wow, I wonder what's going on. Like, why is this happening? I've shared this story before of uh, getting engaged to my wife, Donna, and uh, uh, we both met up here in Seattle. We're both from California. We're driving back to California over spring break. I proposed in January. It's now March. We've been engaged eight weeks or something like that. We're driving home, and my wife, Donna, wasn't my wife then, my fiance. She's super critical of my driving, like she's like, you're driving too slow. Why don't you go in the other lane and pass that truck? Or you're driving too fast, slow down. Or, and it was sort of really, like my response was disproportionately large to her crime, if that makes sense. So then we pull off to look at a waterfall and she's like this, park there. I snapped. I drove to the far end of the parking lot. I parked as far away from that place as I could. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know if I can marry you. Which was like a, that's a pretty bold statement after we've been engaged for six or eight weeks. She starts to cry. She goes, what? what are you? I said, I can't handle this the way you're being right now. But then, as we talked about it, we realized, oh, you know what? My anger isn't actually toward her. It's toward my mother, who was often hypercritical of me and I never, ever dealt with it. I never expressed my anger to my mom. I never forgave my mom. I never addressed it. And so now I'm taking all that old anger still in me, and I'm pouring it out. I'm taking the dump truck and backing it up and dumping it all on her. For my soul to be redeemed, I had to confess my anger. And I had to forgive my mom. And then I wasn't angry at my fiance anymore. This is the work that if we don't do it, we can have big Bibles, sing lots of songs, and still never know redemption. Never look like Jesus. 
And the sad truth is there are many people who are, they have new life in Christ, but their soul has never known redemption. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 16, 26. Hey, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? <laughs> and to lose your soul means this. Your soul is cut off from your spirit, which is Christ's. And when that happens, your soul is like a boat without a rudder and you're just carried along by your mind, your will, your emotions, and the currents of culture. It's exactly where many Christians are living today. Remember 1 Peter 1.9, God's desire of the salvation of your soul. Third staircase to nowhere, a new spirit and transformed soul in a rebellious body. This is how I look at Elijah. 1 Kings 17 is where there's a drought and Elijah confronts false idols and whether you agree with my Elijah illustration or not, we know that uh, after he confronts these idols and has this massive, quote-unquote, success on Mount Carmel, when Queen Jezebel uh, says, I want to kill him, he runs away and has what looks like a breakdown, basically, in a cave. And then when God meets him, it's so amazing to me, when God meets Elijah, who's super discouraged, and he's like, I'm the only faithful person in the world, which is a lie, what, what does God say to him? Pray more? Read more? No. He says, hey, eat some food. Super practical. Look, you feel like the whole world's against you? Have a cookie, man. Everything will look better. Take a nap. God is practical, because when the day is done... If our body isn't cared for, the new life in Christ and the mind and will and emotions that are, are transformed, they, they won't look right on the outside unless you get enough sleep, unless you eat decent food. It just, the whole thing's tied together. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, I discipline my what? Does anyone know? My body and make it my slave. Why do I discipline my body? It's not because I want to win the Olympics, or I want to have the best body mass index, or the lowest blood pressure. It's because my body is the receptacle containing nothing less than the resurrected Jesus, and if my body is broken, it cannot reflect Jesus as clearly. That's just the way it is. So this brings us now to the final reality, my third, basically, point, right? We, we, we've talked about um, the review of where we've been, the risk of stairways to nowhere. The final reality, what is our true purpose? And, and this brings us to, the, to kind of the end of the whole series. And remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I've already read it. But Paul says, look, my goal is union with Christ. So let me just read Philippians 3.10 as we bring this thing to a close. This is where he says, um, my desire is to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness from my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And then here's Paul's passion. Don't you love this? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain resurrection from the dead. So there's just a couple quick things here. What, what's the goal for Paul of a, of a renewed spirit, Christ living in me, 
a redeemed soul, my broken story made whole, brought into submission to Christ, and a body now stewarded and obedient that it can reflect the life of Christ. What's the goal of all that? Paul says this, that I may, like in verse 10, he says that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, that I might now in my body display nothing less than the resurrected life of Jesus. What did Jesus say in John 10.10? 10? The, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might what? Have life. And that word life isn't uh, biological life. You already have it. It's not by us. It's this Greek word zoe. I've come that you might have a supernatural life. When? When you die? Today. Why? Christ lives in you. Why? But why does Christ live in you? So you can get your ticket stamped and, and show it to God when you arrive at the pearly gates and go into heaven? No, 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 no. That's incidental. Why does Christ live in you? Because there's a world desperate to see nothing less than the hope, joy, mercy, peace, wisdom, strength, and supernatural love that is Jesus. And that life is now intended to be on display in you. And that will never happen unless your new spirit and your redeemed soul are given expression through a stewarded and obedient body. But when that happens, you know Christ. You're now conformed to his death because you've done soul work. You've died to selfish ambition. You've died to self-medicated addictions. You've died to pride, consumerism, materialism, nationalism, fear, greed, tribalism, racism, prejudice. So now the Jesus who's alive in you is free to find expression through this redeemed soul so that now you in your body begin to display nothing less than Christ. Wow. This is the life that you're created for. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul, at the end of this prayer, that's a benedictory prayer, he says, now to the one who is able to do abundantly beyond all that we can ask, hope, or even imagine, to him be glory, etc., etc. But I want to key in on this phrase. What is God wanting to do for you? Watch this. Beyond all that you could ask, hope, or even imagine. So imagine... Here's you. Imagine the, the best version of you in our staircase metaphor. Right? Here I am. I'd like to be here. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying. Whatever you're imagining, not high enough. This is the tragedy that is our culture so often. Here we are, and we're like this. You know what make life really good? Um, a gift certificate to REI. Really? You're thinking too small. You don't make life really good? Oh, I know. Uh, a six-figure salary. What would make life really good? A healthy marriage. Healthy kids. I want to make a difference in the world. Keep going. Because God won't settle for anything less than what? You using the unique gifts that God has given you to display the resurrected Jesus to a world that is hungry for exactly what you have to offer. If you sell for anything less, you're cheating yourself. So this is why we did Spirit, Soul, Body. Because our desire is to be a community pursuing wholeness so that 
the people driving by right now who hate Christianity will see in us the deepest longings of their own hearts. Intimacy, joy, hope, justice, beauty, and meaning. I hope you'll join us on the journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have these moments together. As we've done this series, I pray that you'd speak to each one of us now regarding how best to respond. May we respond in ways that honor you. For some, you're speaking about our body. For some, our spirit. For some, our soul. Whatever it is, may we take steps toward wholeness and we'll thank you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.